I am attempting to memorize Psalm 91 these days. We read it together a little bit ago. I'm not great at memorizing scripture, but it is something I want to do more of in my midlife, if you will. Last Lent, Leah, Marshall, and I actually memorized Psalm 25 together. And it was a beautiful endeavor. It was really fun to do with another person, to keep each other on track. We would call each other each week and kind of check in and recite what we had so far. We'd either do it on the phone or send each other a voice memo. And these words from Psalm 25 that we memorized have indeed dwelt in my heart more richly since then. So I recommend it to you. Maybe even in this new season, we are beginning tonight, the season of Christmastide. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Can I get a hallelujah? <laughs> you now have 12 days of a new season to try memorizing something, something from the Bible, a psalm, or maybe another passage. Psalm 91 is taking me longer than 12 days to memorize. I have avoided it a little bit, to be honest with you. And it's not just because of Christmas busyness. It's not just because I'm having people over or working on poems or the various things I do with my free time. I want to go over this psalm and repeat it and practice it before bed each night. That's my goal. But I am not doing it very faithfully partly because it is a little bit of a scary psalm. It starts with images of snares. By that I mean traps for animals. Now, you might not have as vivid an imagination for snares as I do because our son, Adam, has made a few of them with string, with wood, with wire, and some have been successful. So I have very vivid images. And that's how this psalm begins. And then it goes on to talk pretty quickly about deadly pestilence. Have you had enough deadly pestilence in your lives for the last couple years? Then the psalm mentions terror, weapons of war, sickness, disaster, dangerous animals like lions and snakes, and death itself is in this psalm. All this right before I sleep? Any of you with small children are thinking, yeah, that is not great bedtime reading material. The psalm talks about the terror of the night, pestilence stalking in darkness, are these the phrases you want dancing in your imagination as you turn all the lights off and climb the stairs to a darkened bedroom? Well, yes. I think you can go there. I can go there because there is something, or better said, someone stronger than pestilence, stronger than the terrors of the night here in this psalm too. Someone, the psalm tells us, under whose feathers we might take refuge. 
right in the midst of all of these terrifying things. Honestly, the things that I'm most afraid of are here in this psalm. Disaster, disease, war, death. Right in the middle of that, the psalm tells us there is someone who offers refuge, shelter, rest. And it is Yahweh. It is God himself. A lot of Christmas songs are set at night. Have you noticed that? We are singing some of them tonight. Silent night, O holy night, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. It came upon a midnight clear, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. You know how it goes. And for good reason, these songs are situated in the night. And here we are gathered together at night. Luke 2, which we just heard, tells us the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks at night before the angels appeared to them. But... Was Jesus actually born at night? I'm not trying to destroy any treasured traditions, but there's no biblical evidence to my knowledge that Jesus was born at night. If I've missed something and you know otherwise, Connor, please come and tell me. (laughs) Please come and tell me. But from what I can tell, when the angels announced to the shepherds at night, They actually say, today a savior has been born to you. Jesus might have been born at 10 a.m., y'all. We just don't know. But we affirm that Jesus entered this world fully human, which meant he and Mary went through the unpredictable, vulnerable process of labor and delivery And as any mama can attest, it happens when it happens. And we don't really know if it was night or day. But the tradition makes a lot of sense metaphorically. Light, daylight, is not only a reality in the created order, but light is also packed with meaning the whole way through the Bible from let there be light to the new Jerusalem where Revelation 21 says, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. We heard from this astounding prophecy in Isaiah nine. Actually, we heard it at the lessons and carols and then we heard it again tonight. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. This is a prophecy about Jesus, who would in fact, as Islet told us, call himself the light of the world. So it is so good, so appropriate to sing about light in the dark, to have lights in our celebrating tonight and tomorrow and for the next 12 days. A light has dawned in our darkness and his name is Jesus.
a part of this season of Advent that we have just lived through for the past four weeks is reckoning with the darkness. And we all live with significant darkness. By that I mean the things that are not right, things that are not as they should be. Things are wrecked and broken. Things are shrouded by a diagnosis, by the grief of a holiday without a dear one who is gone. Maybe it's the darkness of mental illness or a miscarriage, or persisting infertility, the loss of a relationship. Maybe it's the darkness of an addiction only known to you and to God. Or it could be anxiety, could be overwhelming doubt or loneliness. I cannot possibly name all the things that make life dark for us. But in Advent, as the days are shortened and we are literally exposed to less and less natural light, it's a time to name that darkness, to feel it, to lament it, to long, to watch, and to wait. We are people living in a land of deep darkness. But here's the good news. Thanks be to God, a light has dawned. And yes, the angels made a big splash, a surprising great company of the heavenly host. It was bright, it was loud, I imagine, it was obviously terrifying. I actually love the old King James that says the shepherds were sore afraid. It's like they were so afraid they were sore. It's like sensory overload for these guys used to looking at hillsides and sheep. But after this, this wow experience, this wow proclamation, where are they sent? But to find the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and the angel's words, the light so desperately needed, they're sent to this humble, small, rather obscure feeding trough where a newborn squirmed. It is not as wow, is it? It's not as obviously bright. God's way of salvation, of rescue at this climactic inbreaking, the incarnation, it's not like Thor descending from heaven on a chariot of fire. I know Thor doesn't really do that, I've been advised, but you know what I'm saying. It's not like that. It is this tiny human, one of us. A tiny human who needed to nurse, to have his diaper changed, to be held, to be loved, to be protected, to be taught how to sleep. Here is the light of the world, so small, so seemingly insignificant, it brings to mind the poem that Dave was riffing on last Sunday that speaks of Jesus as this tiny wick of a candle, curled up, not even lit yet. So let me ask you this. How does an infant, helpless himself, shine a great light and dispel our darkness? Does this newborn baby in a barn of sorts, 
actually address, actually deal with all of our terrors, our disasters, our diseases, our heartbreak, our rebellion, our folly, our idolatry, our suffering, our deaths. How does he deal with all of that? Well, it's only Christmas Eve in our calendar. He's only just been born, so you have to stick with us the whole year to find out the answer to that, to find out how he indeed fulfills what Zechariah prophesied over John, Jesus's cousin, the forerunner to Jesus, who prepared people for the light to come. Zechariah sang these words over another baby. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That is what Jesus came to do. That is why there's a baby in Mary's arms tonight, because of the tender mercy of our God. He comes to us, he comes for us as one of us. I wonder if when we either prayed Psalm 91 responsively or when I started this message tonight talking about Psalm 91, and if you're somewhat familiar with your Bible, you might think, yeah, I avoid that Psalm too. Maybe for different reasons than what I mentioned. Maybe you know it as a Psalm that, yes, has some scary imagery, but it's a Psalm that seems to make a lot of promises of rescue, of protection from harm and from evil. And with all the darkness I've just mentioned, how could the scriptures say things like this? Honestly, I am with you there, if that's your question, in a lot of ways. I have some similar questions. When refugees are fleeing violence, when the cancer isn't healed, when deep-seated hopes are destroyed, when children rebel and spouses abandon, how can we say these things? How can we memorize this psalm? In the second to last verse of this psalm, Psalm 91, verse 15, there's a surprising sentence. I wonder if it stuck in your throat a little bit while we were reading it. It does to me every time I read it. It's Yahweh speaking at this point. It's God himself. And he says of the one who loves him, that's us, by the way. He says, I will be with him in trouble. Now, wait a second. I thought this was a psalm about being rescued out of trouble. But right in the middle of all of this, and honestly, I think a central promise of all that God has revealed in these pages and in history, this is what we find. God with us. In Tish Harrison Warren's excellent book, Prayers in the Night, she writes, mysteriously, God does not take away our vulnerability. He enters into it. I 
just want to close with this. Remember what we are celebrating tonight, his first coming. It's crucial to the plan. It's beautiful. It's surprising. But friends, he is coming again for that full and final rescue. The very last word of Psalm 91 is salvation. And that will be the final word. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Amen?